Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. It is a Wednesday, which means this is Mailbag Wednesday, your chance to direct the show where we go. Now, real quick, before we dive into the questions, I want to remind Duck fans out there, if you are not a VIP subscriber, why not? You need to jump in on this now. Get in for your first month is only $1. Your first month is just $1. After that, it goes to $9.95. You get inside scoop, you get expert analysis, you get content across the entire 24-7 sports network, uh, you get in, into the message board system, uh, and you also get exclusive recruiting coverage, and as, as always, once you start paying the full price of $9.95, so after your first month, you get CBS All Access, you get the new Star Trek TV show, you get the other Star Trek show that just came out. Uh, you get 10,000 shows, live sports, movies, all commercial free, free included with your 24-7 sports membership. So jump in on that. Now $1 for your first month, nine ninety five after that for each month following. Jump in on it now if you haven't. And if you have, thanks. We appreciate it. Keep coming back. Hope, hope you guys are enjoying your time with us. Now, Eric, uh, it's kind of like a recruiting week because – Yesterday, the the site 24/7 Sports, our network, we've released our final rankings for the 2020 class. National Signing Day is approaching. Uh, it's less. It's it's about a week away now, right? Uh, and so I think there's a lot of questions about where does this group go in the final week of recruiting. And I think we're going to start this show off with some recruiting questions. Yeah, it is a recruiting first half of the show. It is all recruiting to start. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie, Matt. I just looked at the calendar myself and went, oh, yeah, sign, the second signing period starts in a week. Exactly. So yes. <laughs> I don't know where the time has gone because it, it felt, it doesn't feel like the early signing period was that long ago, but I guess that's just the way all of this comes together now with the new, uh, with, with the two different signing periods. But uh, yeah, it is really fast approaching. So these questions are going to be very much recruiting oriented. So first first question starts off with at Crisley12345. How do you think Oregon finishes up this class? I know Jason Jones looks likely, hoping for Malachi Weidman. Any other names you think may maybe end up at Oregon, or is there really only room for two more right now? There's more room. Um, not a lot. I, I would probably say they could probably add maybe one or two, maybe three more guys. That's really pushing it. Um, but... It's more so of who's out there that's available that is of the quality that Oregon's looking for. And right now, from where we're sitting on January 29th, one week out from National Signing Day, I really only think that there are two players out there that Oregon's severely, heavily, you know, consistently recruiting. And, and those that you guys just mentioned, four-star defensive tackle, Jason Jones, who's currently committed to Alabama, was here for an official visit last weekend. And then Malachi Weidman, a four-star wide receiver, who's currently committed to Florida State, who will not be signing with Florida State. Uh, he was also here this past weekend for an official visit. 
Um, there was another defensive lineman that they were recruiting. They were going to bring him out this weekend for an official visit. That's DeAndre Butler, a junior college transfer. He has since committed to Auburn after taking an official visit there this past weekend. And I think from an Oregon perspective, like they obviously would have loved to have had him come out for an official visit, but they're also feeling really, really good about their prospects of landing Jason Jones and seeing DeAndre Butler go to Auburn uh, isn't necessarily a deal breaker or they would have loved to have had him. They would have loved to have added him. Um, but if they're going to get a guy like Jason Jones, uh, it, Butler's importance for this class becomes very minimal because you're getting a guy who's probably going to be just as good uh, and have him for four or five years instead of having him for two years like Butler will be at, at Auburn. So uh, you're you're saying, okay, we, we miss on Butler, but we're potentially going to be adding a Jones who we could have for three to five seasons at Oregon. And look, if if Alabama wants this guy, uh, they, they, they're in a numbers crunch. And let me just you know, peel things back here a little bit. They're in a numbers crunch. Um, this is how good <laughs> recruiting Alabama is right now. Uh, but they're in a numbers crunch and they're trying to get, uh, Jason Jones to blue shirt and that's delaying his enrollment for basically a year and showing up as a member of the 2021 recruiting class, walking on first and then getting a scholarship when one becomes available in 2021 and also applying offensive tackle, uh, because if they've, they've, they've been able to go out and land a bunch of four star defensive linemen, uh, and Jason Jones is probably not really up for that. He would rather play defensive tackle and he'd rather come into the class in 2020 instead of 2021. So he's looking at his options and it looking, it's looking like Oregon is the school that he will land. Now Malachi Weigman, um, this one's more up in the air. He was here for an official visit, liked Oregon, loved Oregon. Everything that we're hearing on that is really good. Uh, I do wonder about distance. I've heard that a couple of times of, you know, it's a long ways away from Florida where he plays his prep football. Uh, but there is a, a, a spot for him to play and make an impact right away next season and the next few seasons. Uh, because look, Oregon doesn't have a lot of six foot five wide receivers that Malachi Weidman is. And there's also basketball on the table for Weidman. Um, if, if he can handle the, the rigors of two sports, we've been told that Weidman would be given the opportunity to at least try out for the basketball team at Oregon as well, because he is a, a talented basketball prospect and, you know, a lot of schools are recruiting him for both, but he, you know, would come to Oregon first and foremost as a receiver. And then if things are, uh, if he can, if he can handle the rigors of that and it makes sense to, then he would potentially have a chance to play basketball as well. Not to hijack it, but it seems very infrequent that the football basketball combination works. Yes. Yes. Um, from a timing perspective in particular, you're still playing your season. You basically miss all of non-conference play. By the time you get into conference play, spring football is starting. Um, it becomes very difficult to do both. So um, not not saying it wouldn't work for a guy like Weidman. I just think that would be – the realities are – that's very challenging. I think Eric Armstead did that, gosh, that must have been five or six years ago and scored like two points in the entire time. He tried to do it for a couple of seasons. Um, it's, it's not easy to do. No. And I, I think really the only – Guys, I, guy, I, in my, 
you know, recollection. I, I, I know there's a couple guys that have did it in the early 90s, mid 90s and whatnot, but, um, the only one I can really recall is Julius Peppers at North right. Carolina who played for the football team and then did a little bit, uh, for a couple seasons for the basketball squad. But and I know there's been a couple other guys that have done it. Um, Tony Gonzalez, I think, did it for, for California. Um, but it, it's extremely rare. And to, to pull it, even just to be a, a guy that's a, a walk on, you know, practice player is, is impressive in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. Second question from at JD High Roller. Not a question necessarily, but I wonder what this 2020 class would have looked like with the addition of DJU. Would it have been the best ever? Um, well, this year's class already is potentially going to be the best ever. So yeah. <laughs> well, you add, you add DJU, uh, and I guess everybody listening, I just assume knows this, but we're talking about DJU Galilei, uh, the number two overall prospect, um, in the country, quarterback out of Southern California, St. John's Bosco, guy that Oregon was really a finalist for was Oregon or Clemson, and, and he went Clemson in the spread around the spring game. Um, Oregon quickly recovers and gets Jay Butterfield. Um, it, it would totally change the complexion, and we'd be talking right now about a class with, with four or five-star recruits in it for Oregon. Um, and you wonder if he would have picked Oregon instead of Clemson way back when, in April, I believe it was, what the, I guess, uh, domino effect would have been. I, I, I would imagine a player like DJ committing to Oregon, that would have been very attractive for recruits on both sides of the football. You're talking about one of the more highly regarded prep quarterbacks of the last decade or so. Um, it would have been a huge uh, addition. And, yeah, I think you could pr- make a very strong case it would have been the best in program history. And But like Matt just said, this class is already pushing to be the best ever. Now, I don't know if it's going to quite get to the ranking it was last year, but if you just look at it from a top tier, you look at the top three prospects in a class, this year's class is, I think, undoubtedly the best in program history. I don't think there's a ton of an art. I don't know if there's much of an argument against that at this point. Yeah, 2019's class had a score of 277.98 with 26 commitments. Uh, right now in 2020, uh, the class uh, ranks around 257 with 21 commitments. So, um, the, there's five fewer guys that Oregon has signed so far. Now that's going to change when we find out what a couple other players decide to do, mainly Weidman and Jason Jones. Um, but if you were just to throw in DJ into this class, you would obviously have to pull off Jay Butterfield because they would not have, uh, taken both of those guys. And quite honestly, I don't think both of those guys would have gone to the same school. Right. Uh, or Oregon's class is 261 um, from a recruiting perspective, and uh, that would that would be the ninth best class and program in the in the country this season. Uh, 12 spots behind Florida, uh, 13 spots behind Auburn, uh, and then and then even more, almost 20 spots behind Texas A&M at six. So you're still a ways, you're still you know a, a couple pieces away from from adding a guy like. Uh, best ever, but DJU would certainly present a, a, a dynamic in which they would have, like you said, four four stars for the first time ever. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty nuts. Uh, I mean, we're already at the, at the part where it's like, wow, this is crazy. They've got three. Uh, this is crazy. They've got two. Uh, it, it, it just shows you, I think, how good this class is right now. And let's just, let's just from a perspective, in case add, let's just add Weidman and 
Jason Jones to this class uh, and keep Jay Butterfield on it. They're 265 with 23 verbal commitments. So they're still about 12, 12 points behind uh, the, you know, from last season's record class. But I think it goes to the saying of, you know, that class still had three more guys signed than what Oregon will sign this year. So while they don't have the points, the, the recruit per prospect in my mind is about very, is very similar to what last year's group has. Yeah, and, I, and not to go too far off the rails with hypotheticals, although if those who have listened know that that's kind of my favorite place to talk sometimes. But uh, you'd also consider if they would have landed DJU when he committed to Clemson's A, picked Oregon back then, I would guess a guy like Court Williams, a high school teammate of his who's going to Ohio State, might have looked at Oregon and a couple of these other top players from California and just the West Coast in general would have given it a really hard look because, as we know, there's probably not a position more important in the sport than a quarterback, and that is certainly the, the case, too, in recruiting. When you go out and land a player of his caliber early on in the process, there are going to be a lot of recruits who would take notice of that and possibly choose to follow. So um, I think a really interesting question, and and one I think I'm sure Oregon fans are going to follow DJU's career just like Oregon fans followed uh, Tua Tagovailoa these last couple of years of what could have been if he was at Oregon, would this team be different? Um, and, you know, knowing how good DJ is and what the upside is there. I think following his career at Clemson, you could be following a, a player who wins some Heisman trophies who leads Clemson to national championships. So probably not going to be super fun to follow him from afar as an Oregon fan, but uh, certainly something you can do and kind of wonder what would have been. All right, third question from at 247Duck1. What area is this recruiting class lacking in that seems to be an immediate need? And second question, how many spots do the Ducks realistically have left for the late signing period? I think, Matt, you've already kind of touched on the second question in terms of how much space is available. But the first question, tight end probably isn't a spot that comes to mind. I think defensive tackle, for me, is a spot that Jason Jones might fill. And, and wide receiver, the spot that Malachi Weidman uh, might fill. Are there other spots that stand out? And I guess maybe what, what of those three positions, or if there's a, another position, I guess which one is maybe the area that you're most concerned about or you think they need to address? Well, I think and this is where you get into like, okay, let's go out and find some grad transfers. Right. Like that's like that's where a lot of these needs could get really solidified for a year because going into 2020, you, you kind of have some questions of, okay, like I think Tyler Shuck is going to be good, but is he for real? It, it and what are the you know how comfortable are you are you throwing out? Uh, redshirt Kale, fre- uh, freshman at Kale Millen, who really didn't get to play much in practice this season because of injury as, as a true freshman, or two other true freshmen, Jay Butterfield and, and Robbie Ashford, a quarterback. So do you need to go out and sign a grad transfer? Is the guy that you're going to take out there going to be better than Tyler Shuck? I don't necessarily think there is one out there right now, um, but that could be one. Tight end, you look at that position and say, okay, well, Cam McCormick is the best tight end of the group. He was, you know, from a, from a skill set standpoint, the best tight end Oregon had going into the 2019 season. But McCormick hasn't been able to stay healthy for the last two seasons. So how is he, how are you going to be able to, to count on him to be healthy for 2020 definitively? You, you just can't. It's, 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 it sucks to say that, but, you just can't. So I, I think going out and finding another tight end because while Hunter Campmoyer is a guy that gives maximum effort and is going to be 
uh, you know, ultimate team guy. He's just not the same caliber of a tight end as McCormick or as a Breland, uh, that we've seen at Oregon. He just, that's the reality. He's not. And can Spencer Webb take a next step? I mean, all year we heard how close he was, but he never really overcame that. Um, Patrick Herbert, he redshirted this season. Is he going to be able to help Oregon? Um, those are basically your tight ends for next season. And do you feel comfortable with the four or do you want to go out and try and find a grad transfer? I think it would make sense to go out and find a grad transfer at the tight end spot. Just to, even if he's not a starter, but just a, a secondary guy, just to give Oregon another option in case a Webb or a Campmore or a, a, a Herbert or a McCormick aren't ready for 2020 um, full time. I think defensive tackle, like you said, makes a lot of sense. And then I, I think you could make a, make a case of receiver for sure. Um, and then I was also going to, to say defensive back. If, if there's a guy out there, and I don't think there is from a high school perspective, going out and finding one more DB, but um, I, it's gotten to the point now where so many of the, the top prospects co- commit and sign in December that – You've got slim pickings, and the way Oregon's recruiting right now, you don't want to take a guy just to take a guy because you need that spot next year because you're going to be in for a majority of the, of the four-star prospects across the country and five-star guys. So you want as many scholarships as you can because you know, hey, we we might not find a guy this year, but we know for a fact that we're in it with these 150 recruits that are four- or five-star prospects. I think a lot of good points, Matt, there in terms of what's needed. And I think good points, too, in terms of it's not – like this class isn't solidified completely you know, in stone on February 5th when we're expecting some of these players to, to make – to sign. You know, the the regular signing period draws into April 1st. I've just got it pulled up here. So there is, you know, an extended period of time after that for Oregon to continue to recruit. And then the grad transfer thing, uh, that could carry into the spring and even maybe into the summer a little bit in terms of trying to finish up – this roster. So, um, for those going, oh, well, we've got it. February 5th is kind of the end of the roster construction. That's not accurate. Oregon can still go out and add. And, and I think as Matt, I think as Mario says, talent acquisition never stops. And I think that's something that will be true in terms of just because maybe February 5th is when, you know, maybe they sign two or three extra players to this class. It doesn't mean that's the end of kind of building on this roster. So there might be some needs that aren't met by February 5th. That doesn't mean Oregon is done trying to kind of finalize things either. Fourth question from at Paradise919400. Curious, were both Seth Figgins and Peter Olatu academically ineligible, or did Oregon merely lose interest? Um, go ahead, Matt. Well, Figgins uh, has some work to do. He has also since moved back to California, and when you change high school so quickly like that, that always creates – doesn't – it makes just things more difficult right? because, you know, classes always don't translate over to each class, especially when it's outside the States. Uh, you know, when you go from California to Oregon and from back from Oregon to California. So um, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Law two is another one where look like it, the reality is, is uh, he, he hasn't signed when he, when he could have. And I think Oregon's going, uh, it's a difficult deal here. I think, I think Latu also has some academics that he's getting in order. And if those get in order, he probably will sign. But if, if not, uh, 
uh, he's not going to sign next week. We don't anticipate either of those guys signing national letters of intent with Oregon next week um, just because of where they're currently at. And it, it would it, if they get to Oregon, it's going to be down the road. It's going to do it for this first half of the Odds and Audible's podcast, Mailbag Edition. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back, uh, dive into some more questions that you guys have sent Eric and I. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Eric's running the ship with the questions with the mailbag. We've got four more, I believe. Is that right? That's right. First question from at Smith Garrett 91. And I just want to tell Garrett, I love this question. Uh, and I'm probably going to end up writing something kind of extensive on it, um, probably either later this week or sometime in the future. But uh, do you think there are any single season records that could be broken this year, specifically on defense? I think that Kayvon Thibodeau could break the record for sacks. Um, I was look, I've just been kind of sitting here glancing through Oregon's single season records. And, uh, we'll start with sacks since that was where we're, what was brought up. The number is 13. Um, Kayvon had nine this year. I don't think 13 is safe at all. It's by Ernest Jones and Nick Reed, um, about 15 years apart. And Jones early nineties, Reed mid two thousands. Um, that could absolutely fall. I think that's definitely one to keep an eye on here. We, we talked about Kayvon previously being somebody capable of getting to 15, 16 sacks. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility at all. 13 is not a huge number. That's about one per game. It's an impressive number, obviously, as it's a school record and no one's done it since. But I, I don't think that one is is one that you look at and go, that's completely impossible. And it might not be 2020. Maybe it's 2021. But I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, given what we saw from Thibodeau as a freshman, if he stays healthy, and I'm, again, knocking furiously on wood while I say that, if he stays healthy over the course of his career, I would probably honestly bet that he would at some point break that sack record just because he's, I, I think, undoubtedly the highest uh, ceiling player from a defensive perspective to, to get that kind of record. A couple other defensive stats, uh, single-season tackles is 206. Uh, there's no way that's been broken. Uh, I, I would be absolutely floored if Justin Flo had 206 tackles this year or anyone else on the roster even gets close to that. Single season interceptions uh, was set in 1951 by George Shaw. The number is 13. That's not that's not getting touched. That's not getting touched. I'll tell you right now. I mean, that's a massive number. There's no way that's going down. So defensively, it's really sacks. I could see Thibodeau maybe getting close to. I don't think anything else is really on the table. But then you get into some interesting stuff here because. 
it wouldn't take that much of an increase in, in statistics for Johnny Johnson to pass Dylan Mitchell, who just set this record a couple of years ago, um, in terms of receiving yards or receiving touchdowns for that matter. But receiving yards, uh, 1,184 is the current record. Jo- uh, Johnny Johnson had 836 this last year. So we're talking about 350 more receiving yards, which is, I don't think, Crazy to suggest that Johnny Johnson could get there this year. That's less than thirty yard, thirty five yards a game increase. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's not that outside of the possibility. He could also get to the receptions record. He had fifty seven this year. Last the record from Sammy Parker and Jeff Mayall, two to two, two players did it. It's seventy seven. I don't think it's crazy to suggest that Johnny Johnson gets twenty more receptions this year either. Touchdowns might be a little harder. The number is twelve. He had seven this last year, but again. He could be somebody that factors into that. Maybe a guy like Devin Williams becomes a big play guy around the end zone. That's probably a lot to ask for in his first season to set the school touchdown record, but certainly something to keep an eye on. And then in terms of uh, passing yards, I'm not even considering that. I think that's a lot to ask, uh, obviously, to, to have somebody contend with the numbers Marcus Mario to put up in their first year as a starter. Not really expecting that, but maybe C.J. Verdell could get close with a massive season to Royce Freeman. Royce Freeman, 1,836 individual yards back in 2015. Riddell this last season, 1220. That's 600 yards, though. That's a pretty pretty large increase. So unless they kind of figure, hey, well, I guess we should say, if Riddell stays healthy and can play in the second half of every game this year, he probably has roughly an extra 250 yards we're talking about right now because he missed, as a lot of people remember, probably four or five second halves. I'd have to go back and look again. But, um, you know, I think looking at it, I think, if I'm being honest and objective, Kayvon with the sack numbers looks reasonable, and maybe a Johnny Johnson with some of these receiving numbers. The rest of them, I think, are are pretty high hills to climb. I wonder what kind of year we could see C.J. Verdell have and where that might put him in the career numbers. I don't think he's going to he's gonna top Oregon's career rushing record, or season record, uh, Oregon's single season rushing record but given the fact that in two years he's gone over i think 22 2300 yards uh on the ground in, in his first two seasons i i gotta think he has a chance if he has a big junior year to set himself up i know it's 2020 season but I, i'm gonna go down the rabbit hole i have a, a feeling if he could have a big year as a junior he could set himself up for maybe having a, a shot at going for that career rushing record at Oregon if he comes back for his senior year. Yeah, so like let's see here. So he's currently at 2,238, which puts him on, he's honestly almost 10th all time in career rushing. Uh, 10th is Bobby Moore, um, early 70s, 2,306. So he's right there for that. Let's say he produces 1,500 yards this season. That would put him at 3,700, which would pass him uh, which would have him pass Kenyon Barner for third all-time, which would then mean he would need about 1,800 yards as a senior in 2021 to pass Royce Freeman. So it could get interesting there. Obviously, we're projecting two seasons of of kind of improvement from him to get to that number. But we're talking about 300, about 300 yards more in 2020 than he had this past year, and then 300 extra yards in terms of production again in 2021. So it would be pretty – standard kind of typical improvement you see over a career for a running back. And if Oregon is as competitive and as good as we think, it's not impossible that C.J. Verdell could 
move into that conversation. It is clear to me that if he continues to be the lead guy, though, this year, he's going to be in the top five. All, and he should be in the top five all-time rushing career yardage um, as long as he has a strong junior season, and there's no doubt about it. And now there's a double-edged sword here because you look at it and say, well, he he only met, he missed like six halves of football this season because of because of injury and his numbers could have been better right. so if if he stays healthy next year as a junior it, it, it's very easily understandable to see him get to that number uh to see that you know 300 increase next year easy i mean he could he could do that in just two games um but at the same time the other edge of that sword is well he missed six halves of football this season you just can't dismiss that like that you know his health Will dictate where he he falls in Oregon's career records. Now, another guy from a career record from a 2020 standpoint, I'd be curious to see. You have the records in front of you. I don't. Um, yeah. Where Johnny Johnson could end up for you know career receptions, career yards, and career receiving touchdowns uh, at Oregon because he's probably got a chance. I think. To, to be near the top of all three of those, right? Yeah, let me pull up, let me pull up his stats again because I closed that tab. Uh, yeah, he's currently at about 1,300 yards in his career and 12 touchdowns. He's got, uh, 95 career receptions. He could, uh, it would be, he could get, yeah, if he had an 80, if he had 80 receptions this year, he could pass Sammy Parker all time. I don't think that's a crazy number. That would he'd have to set the single season record to do it, but he could get there. In terms of receiving yardage, he needs about fifteen hundred this yeah. year, which which is which is a lot to ask. Yeah. Um, receiving touchdowns would be about twelve. For him to get all the school records career wise, he'd need to set single season records in receptions, yardage, and touchdowns. Not saying that's impossible, um, but a couple of those he would need really really big number increases. Again. We saw him come on. I mean, we should mention the way he finished this last season was one of the better finishes we've seen from a player. Obviously, Dylan Mitchell was probably a little better the year prior, but he had some really big games down the stretch for Oregon, catching touchdown passes and four straight games before the Rose Bowl, uh, going for over 200 yards against Arizona State and 10 catches. So I don't think it's out of the possibility he has an even better season. Um, a lot of that's going to depend upon coordinator. It's going to depend upon the play at quarterback as well. But certainly one that you could keep an eye on in terms of, hey, if he plays really, really well, maybe some of these career receiving yards and and receptions and touchdown records could fall. All right, sixth question from at Duck Greatness. How do you view the Oregon women's basketball season ending? We definitely have the talent to win it all. Um, I mean, yeah, there's no question they have the talent to win it all. They're, They're ranked third nationally right now for a reason. Um, they are a number one seed in the NCAA tournament for a reason. They have the prohibitive favorite in, I think, the strongest conference in the question for a reason. Um, there's definitely the talent. And, and you know, they have Sabrina Ionescu and no one else does. And I think ultimately that's sort of where it, what the reality is. They have the best player in the country by a large margin. I don't think – I think I'd be pretty floored if she doesn't win National Player of the Year and repeat that. She'd become, I think, the sixth player all time in NCAA women's basketball history to do so. Um, and I think the first since Brianna Stewart in the mid-2010s to do so. Uh, she's one of the best players to ever do it. And she's going to break some big records. Um, she's, go- she's already scored over 2,000 points. She's really close to getting over 1,000 rebounds and 1,000 assists. She will do that in conference play this season as long as her numbers stay steady and become the first player in women's 
for men's college basketball to go over 2,000 points, career 1,000 rebounds, and 1,000 assists. So um, absolutely the possibility to have the roster to do it. If I'm being honest, I think the concern is just depth, A, and then B, the front court. And, you know, the thing this whole offseason was they went out and they added some some players and the front court, they went out and grabbed one of the best grad transfers or one of the best transfers possible in Sedona Prince, a former five-star recruit. They went out and added Lucy Cochran, a highly regarded Australian front court player. They saw improvements from Lydia Giomi. They saw uh, Niara Sabli get healthy. And now we're looking up and none of those four players are available because of the NCAA saying Prince can't play because of you know, Sabali re-injuring herself and because of Giomi and Cochran also dealing with injuries. And the reality is right now, Oregon really doesn't have any depth outside of its starting lineup up in the front court. They don't have, they can't bring in a, a player off the bench really to help them in the front court. So that to me is the big concern. They're going to play UConn here in a little less than a week in stores. That's going to be a huge test. I think we're going to learn an awful lot from that game, but absolutely. I haven't seen anything this whole season that leads me to believe that that Oregon can't go out and win the national championship. Um, I, but I think for them to do so, it's going to come down to that big three of, of obviously UNESCO, Sabali, and Hebert. And really, it's going to come down to UNESCO, I think. If she can go out, and I know she's dedicated this season for to Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi, who just passed away tragically over the weekend. If she goes out and plays at another level, there's no one in this country, no one in the country, I think, that can really beat Oregon with her playing at her best. And I think we're going to see a you know first opportunity against UConn in about five days. I think this sounds so cliche, but you just kind of touched on it briefly. But with their depth issues that they have right now, um, I really think if they're going to win it, they are going to need Sabrina Hebert and Satu Sabali to play the best basketball that they have played at Oregon for the stretch run. Like they're going they're at that they're at the point now where uh I I think in the tournament they need those three players to carry this team and at you know and they're going to you know when they get it to the level where it's the sweet 16 and it's the elite 8 and if they get to the final four or if they get to the championship game they're they're at that level where I, I they have the talent no doubt but i think to win it those three players are going to they can't have off games from all three of them and expect to win because College basketball at the women's level has improved greatly. It used to be just UConn and then at U- in, in Tennessee. And now, you know, look at the Pac-12 in, in itself. There's four top ten teams in the women's Pac-12 this season. I mean, just to, just to win the, the conference tournament, you're, you're going to need your best players to play at their best. And from the conference tournament, it's a little different because it's three games in three days. But – there's not going to be a lot of rest between games. Like you, you get, and, you, and the intensity of those games are going to be insane. And so that's where it comes down to my fear of, well, they're only playing with seven. And like you just said, right now at least, they only have three post players and they start all three of them. And, you know, eventually they're going to get tired. They're going to, you know, wear, start wearing down. And, and, and my fear is how, Soon or how late does that wear down happen? Because 
it will eventually. You know, it, it, you can only go so far playing at such a high level with a, such a short bench. And will Oregon be able to manage that and be able to still find ways to win? I, I think they're the favorites to win it all. But I, I, I think uh, this season, as it's played out, and we've seen the injuries happen for Oregon, and it happens across the board. It's not just Oregon. Everyone has it. But – with how good the, the 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 entire country is, with how good the conference is, right. I don't think their stake as top team in the in the league in the country uh, is as definitive as it was going into the season. And that's just my concern. I think that's totally fair though, too. Just in terms of when Oregon beat Team USA back in uh, early November, that was like, oh crap! Is Oregon, I, I think I wrote afterwards like. Is Oregon going to lose all season? Like, could they could they run the table? Are they that kind of special team? Because it really felt that way. I mean, you look yeah. at who was playing on Team USA. It was Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird, and uh, you run down the list of players. I mean, it was the who's who of top WNBA talent um, playing on that team. And for Oregon to beat them, that said a ton about the upside for the program. But there have been some injuries. There have been, uh, uh, you know, obviously they have to figure out the rotation. Things change. And I agree in terms of, like, I don't think they're – the surefire bet to do it, but I definitely think that they are capable. And like, if, I think you know, gun to the head right now, I still expect that Sabrina Inescu, the, the competitor she is, I don't think she's going to let Oregon down. I don't think she's going to let Oregon lose this season. I know it's a lot of pressure to put on her shoulders, but she's kind of put that on herself with the decision to come back and, and what she's obviously wanting to accomplish this season. Um, I kind of expect greatness from her from here on out, and that's going to mean going through the grind of this conference, because you're right, in terms of the conference tournament in Vegas, they're going to probably play, not probably, they will play, barring huge upsets, two teams that are also going to be Final Four caliber teams in the conference tournament in back-to-back days in the semifinals and in the championship if they make it that far, just because the conference is that loaded. And a team like Arizona State, who's already beaten Oregon State and Oregon this year, is also out there. Um, obviously one of the more difficult outs in the conference too, and they're not even in kind of that top four discussion um, among teams in this conference. So it is there's no easy outs. There are six or seven teams in the conference that can beat anybody on a given night, including Oregon, and that's what makes this conference so difficult, but also sets, I think, it up for the possibility to be so battle-tested going into um, an NCAA tournament in March. Yeah, I, I think they're the favorites to win it all. I just think the gap between them and everybody else, what we perceived it to be going into the year – has shrunk. Like, they're still, in my mind, the number one favorite to win it all. But I don't think they are as – I don't think they're far and away better than every team that we were expecting them to be going into the year. Maybe that was a little bit blinded by beating Team USA um, and not, you know, accepting the fact that there's other really, really good teams out there. Uh, you know, because Oregon does have their faults, and it's just – can they mask them and can they overcome them and play to their strengths? And I think that's going to be the biggest key is can, can they dictate how a game is played? Um, and when they match up against another elite team, like this is completely apples to oranges, but I remember this past weekend from the men's side, uh, the Oregon State Beavers played the USC Trojans in a Saturday afternoon game and Wayne Tinkle, the head coach of the Beavers, changed his starting lineup to match the size that USC had up front. And I felt like before the game had even started, he put his team at a disadvantage because he wasn't playing his five best players and was already, you know, hurting 
the, the, was already trying to adapt without even seeing if his, his his five best could could force USC to change the way that they play. And and so for the women at Oregon, it's can their you know can their guard an up and down pace mentality and I guess their their smaller size up front can they force other teams to play at a pace and a and a height level that Oregon wants to play at or is Oregon going to have to be forced to adapt uh, and, and try and play different ways to, to, to win games? That's going to be ultimately, in my mind, what decides what, what if they, they win the championship or not. They are battle-tested. In the last two weeks, they've beaten Stanford and Oregon State, two, two top ten teams. They've beaten Oregon State twice in that period. I think we're going to learn a ton, like I've said a couple times already, on uh, on February 3rd, this upcoming Monday, uh, when they travel back to Connecticut and play UConn, um, that is going to be a very, very fun matchup. And I think you're going to learn even more about where this team is at on a national level. Seventh question from at Duck Greatness. And I just realized he snuck this by me. He got two questions into this show. So sorry, Duck Greatness. Next week, you're probably not getting a single one unless you bring a real, a real heater. But, uh, what did you guys think of the SCOTA movement? Um, good question. I think, uh, the SCOTA movement. For those unfamiliar, I think pretty much anyone who's on social media knows uh, it was based off of Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian, which if you haven't seen that on Disney+, Plus, it's a very good show. I, I ran through that in about one evening. I'm a Star Wars nerd, so I, I really had fun with that. It was, it was a great show. In terms of the Skoda movement for Oregon, a lot of uh, Oregon fans on Twitter changed their avatar to a photo of Baby Yoda in an Oregon uniform. I think mostly Justin Herbert. Um, I thought it was cute. I thought it was fun. It fit with kind of a bigger movement. I wasn't somebody who was even remotely tempted, though, to change my Twitter avatar. I felt like that would be kind of strange. So, like, I guess I was into it. I thought it was fun. But, like, ultimately it's probably going to be something I don't remember in, like, a year and a half because uh, it, it was just kind of a flavor of the month kind of thing, which which is what happens now on social media. And, frankly, like I said, my memory of this thing, I think I'll probably have – if someone reminds me, I'll go, like, oh, yeah, that was kind of fun. But I'm not going to – it's not like an overarching thing where I'm going to be – begging us to have some, you know, or begging the fan base to come up with something fun next December based upon another TV show's cute character. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting, but I also realized it was an idea stolen from the Seattle Seahawks. And I guess in today's day and age of the Internet, everything is stolen from something. Right. Uh, but I looked at it, like you, I was never going to change mine, and – I looked at it as like this isn't an, an original idea, so I really wasn't all into it. Not to be a downer, but that's where I was. Fair enough. All right, eighth question from at Josh Harden underscore four. Do you think fans should be just as excited as the football players about the challenge about the ability to play the challenging schedule in twenty twenty? To me, there's too much whining about how tough it will be. Um, I've already said like if if you're just a objective fan of football and you're going to these games and you've got the opportunity to to watch North Dakota State, Ohio State, two of the best non-conference games that Oregon has played in a very long time at home, you've got the ability to watch Oregon play Washington, Stanford, USC and Arizona State, all those games at home. Like just from a fan of football, you're going to be treated to some really fun football games. It is a very challenging schedule like he acknowledged um, I stand by that, even though there are some on our website who didn't necessarily agree and think, and are much more optimistic about Oregon's chances this season um, than I was. But like Eric, it's January. Of course, everyone's going to think Oregon's going to go 13 and 0 and make the playoffs. Well, I know that better than anyone else because the uh, the prediction podcast we made last week, I, I turned that into a story, and I woke up and I had like 50 comments, most of them not very nice, 
about my picks for the season. So I'm fully aware of the fact that most most fans, at least most of those that are vocal on the message boards, disagree with the fact that I see Oregon going uh, nine and three this season. But I do think it's a challenging schedule. In terms of fans whining about it, I actually haven't. Maybe I'm just missing it. I have not seen a lot of fans saying that, and maybe I'm also sort of biased because, like I said, um, a lot of fans basically said the schedule wasn't that challenging and that they thought Oregon was going to win 11 or 12 games with that schedule. I think it is a challenging schedule. I don't know, Matt, do you have a, an opinion on this in terms of do you think fans should just appreciate the schedule because it is challenging and it is going to be good games, or, or kind of where do you stand on this one? Um, I I think it's... Uh, an idea that, I don't know, I, I think the season, you look at it because you want to win a championship, right? You want to compete at the highest level. You want to be able to, to finish the highest possible outcome. And they're playing a schedule in which makes that very, very difficult. Now, at the same time, from a pure entertainment standpoint, look, Duck fan, Oregon's going to play in the state of Oregon eight times out of 12 games in the 2020 football season. Seven of those home of those games are home games, and one of them is a game at Corvallis for the Civil War. So, from just a pure entertainment standpoint, you I mean you basically have to drive for wherever you're from in the state of Oregon, or if you drive from Northern California every week or Southern Washington or wherever, but. You have a short distance to drive or to travel to get to a eight out of the 12 football games. And out of those football games that you could see at, in the state of Oregon, you have Ohio State, you have Washington, you have Stanford, you have USC, you have Arizona State, and you have Oregon State. I mean, that's an opportunity to see some incredible football games without having to go very far. And so, yeah, this season looks to be awesome from an entertainment standpoint. Uh, from a competitive standpoint, I think Oregon's putting themselves at a disadvantage on their own uh, with the rest of the country because, look, the reality is you go 12-0, and you're in the playoff. doesn't matter who you play. As long as you're in a Power 5 conference, you go 12-0, and win your conference championship game, you're in. So playing an Ohio State team makes no sense. Playing a North Dakota State Bison team who's – Hasn't lost at the FCS level for like what two years? Three. That make that makes no sense. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Playing Hawaii, a team that won ten games last season, beat multiple Pac-12 teams. That's a difficult game as well, you know. Yeah. Like, and, and it sucks because I want to see these big games. I want to see these, you know, these marquee matchups because I think they should be rewarded for it. But history has shown you're not. You're not going to be rewarded for it unless you play in the SEC. And so you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. And as crappy as it would to, to cover 77 to 14, two or three straight weeks uh, in, in non-conference play, that's the recipe to go 3-0. and And that's the recipe to, to potentially go 11-1 and or 12-0 and because no team in the Pac-12 history has gone through the rigors of a Pac-12 schedule undefeated. And the last team to, to play in the, in the conference and go undefeated is Oregon in 2010. It's very, very rare for any team to go unscathed in conference play. And so playing these difficult non-conference games, you're just setting yourself up. Uh, so I, I, I personally, from a competing for a championship, don't like it. 
from an entertainment perspective, I love it. I think we landed the exact same spot. And I think we both said this a couple times talking about the schedule of just objectively from a fan of wanting to watch good football games, this is going to be, I think, potentially the best season in terms of just talent coming to Austin that there's ever been. Um, you know, you can say what you want to say about Stanford being a little bit down. Washington is under, obviously, new coaching. USC is – you can probably make a strong argument those three programs are weaker right now than they've been in the last five to ten years. And you probably have a pretty strong argument there. Arizona State, you could probably argue, is about as strong as it's been in that same span. So, But, like, still, you're bringing Ohio State and North Dakota State, two teams that I think went a combined 30-1 and this past season, um, and then you throw in – Hawaii, and I think that's basically that's three teams who won a combined forty games this last yep. year, coming to Austin Stadium. That is a tough, tough schedule. That's going to be so fun to watch those Oregon compete. They're going to be battle tested after those games. But again, I land where Matt lands too. But if you're just an Oregon fan thinking about hey, ultimately I want to play for a national championship, this is not the schedule that really sets you up for that. This schedule is one that makes it very challenging to accomplish that goal. And I stand by that. And I stand by the fact that I really think it's a schedule that will challenge Oregon. And I think by the end of the season, they'll be playing really good football. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if you look up at some point and are a little disappointed with the record because they are going to be challenged a lot early on in this season. And, I mean, look at I'll say one last thing on this topic is you you go 3-0 and in non-conference play and you go 11-1, and win the conference championship game, uh, and are 12-1 and going into the Bulls. You're going to be in the playoff. Everyone's going to say you're battle-tested. You're probably – if, if unless there's an undefeated team, you're probably going to be ranked number one in the country, uh, and everyone's going to be heaping your praises. But you also could play San Jose State, New Mexico State, and Idaho State, and go three and zero, go eleven and one, and still get to the college football playoff. And everyone still comes out and says they're one of the best teams in the country. And so, what was you? You have different different levels of difficulty to get to the same result essentially and that's where i fall and that's where uh from a competing for a college football playoff and for competing for a college football championship i don't like this schedule because you're making it more difficult than it doesn't need to be and that's just the hardest part to get through all right, that's going to do it for us on this Mailbag Wednesday. Thank you for everyone for sending your questions in. Thank you for uh, listening. Continue to send them to Eric. Continue subscribing to DuckTerritory.com if you haven't. One dollar for your first month, and then after that, nine ninety five comes with the price uh, included in that. Full price is CBS All Access, ten thousand shows, live sports, movies, all commercial free uh, via the CBS All Access app, which you will get once you are done paying your promotional price. So thank you for uh, listening to the Gods and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.